Welcome everyone to the latest Good Friends Christmas Reading. This year we're delighted to bring you an anthology of tales from the pen of Jerome Klapka Jerome. First things first though, it gives me very great pleasure to introduce this year's cast. Scott Dolwood. Sarah Dovey. Rena Henze. Brian Murphy. T.A. Newman. Mike Percival Maxwell. Sue Savage. Graham Wormsley. So, if you'd like to make yourself comfortable with a glass of something festive in hand, please sit back as we present... Told After Supper by Jerome K. Jerome. Introductory. It was Christmas Eve. I begin this way because it is the proper, orthodox, respectable way to begin. And I have been brought up in a proper, orthodox, respectable way, and taught to always do the proper, orthodox, respectable thing. And the habit clings to me. Of course, as a mere matter of information, it is quite unnecessary to mention the date at all. The experienced reader knows it was Christmas Eve without my telling him. It is always Christmas Eve in a ghost story. Christmas Eve is the ghost's great gala night. On Christmas Eve they hold their annual fate. On Christmas Eve everybody in Ghostland who is anybody, or rather speaking of ghosts one should say, I suppose, every nobody who is any nobody, comes out to show himself or herself, to see and to be seen, to promenade about and display their winding sheets and grave clothes to each other, to criticise one another's style and to sneer at one another's complexion. Christmas Eve Parade, as I expect they themselves term it, is a function doubtless eagerly prepared for, and look forward to throughout Ghostland, especially the swagger set, such as the murdered barons, the crime-stained countesses, and the earls who came over with the conqueror and assassinated their relatives and died raving mad. Hollow moans and fiendish grins are, one may be sure, energetically practised up, Blood-curdling shrieks and marrow-freezing gestures are probably rehearsed for weeks beforehand. Rusty chains and gory daggers are overhauled and put into good working order, and sheets and shrouds laid carefully by from the previous year's show are taken down and shaken out and mended and aired. Oh, it is a stirring night in Ghostland, the night of December the 24th. Ghosts never come out on Christmas night itself, you may have noticed. Christmas Eve, we suspect, has been too much for them. They are not used to excitement. For about a week after Christmas Eve, the gentlemen ghosts no doubt feel as if they were all head and go about making solemn resolutions to themselves that they will stop in next Christmas Eve, while lady spectres are contradictory and snappish and liable to burst into tears and leave the room hurriedly on being spoken to for no perceptible cause whatever. 
Ghosts with no position to maintain, mere middle-class ghosts, occasionally, I believe, do a little haunting on off-nights, on All Hallows' Eve and at Midsummer, and some will even run up for a mere local event, to celebrate, for instance, the anniversary of the hanging of somebody's grandfather, or to prophesy a misfortune. He does love prophesying a misfortune, does the average British ghost. Sent him out to prognosticate trouble to somebody, and he is happy. Let him force his way into a peaceful home, and turn the whole house upside down by foretelling a funeral, or predicting a bankruptcy, or hinting at a coming disgrace, or some other terrible disaster, about which nobody in their senses would want to know sooner than they could possibly help and the prior knowledge of what can serve no useful purpose whatsoever, and he feels that he is combining duty with pleasure. He would never forgive himself if anybody in his family had a trouble, and he had not been there for a couple of months beforehand, doing silly tricks on the lawn or balancing himself on someone's bed rail. Then... There are, besides, the very young or very conscientious ghosts with a lost will or an undiscovered number weighing heavily on their minds, who will haunt steadily all year round, and also the fussy ghost who is indignant at having been buried in the dustbin or in the village pond, and who never gives the parish a single night's quiet until somebody has paid for a first-class funeral for him. But these are the exceptions. As I have said, the average Orthodox ghost does his one turn a year on Christmas Eve and is satisfied. Why, on Christmas Eve, of all nights in the year, I never could myself understand. It is invariably one of the most dismal of nights to be out in. Cold, muddy, and wet. And besides, at Christmas time, everybody has quite enough to put up with in the way of a houseful of living relations— without wanting the ghosts of any dead ones mooning about the place, I am sure. There must be something ghostly in the air of Christmas, something about the close, muggy atmosphere that draws up the ghosts like the dampness of the summer rains brings out the frogs and snails. And not only do the ghosts themselves always walk on Christmas Eve, but live people always sit and talk about them on Christmas Eve. Whenever five or six English-speaking people meet round a fire on Christmas Eve, they start telling each other ghost stories. Nothing satisfies us on Christmas Eve but to hear each other tell authentic anecdotes about specters. It is a genial, festive season, and we love to muse upon graves, and dead bodies, and murders, and blood. There is a good deal of similarity about our ghostly experiences, but this, of course, is not our fault but the fault of ghosts, who never will try any new performances, but always will keep steadily to old, safe business. The consequence is that, when you've been at one Christmas Eve party and heard six people relate their adventures with spirits, you do not require to hear any more ghost stories. To listen to any further ghost stories after that would be like sitting out two farcical comedies, or taking in two comic journals. The repetition would become wearisome. There is always the young man who was, one year, spending the Christmas at a country house, and on Christmas Eve they put him to sleep in the West Wing. Then, 
In the middle of the night, the room door quietly opens, and somebody, generally a lady in her nightdress, walks slowly in and comes and sits on the bed. The young man thinks it must be one of the visitors or some relative of the family, though he does not remember having previously seen her, who, unable to go to sleep and feeling lonesome all by herself, has come into his room for a chat. He has no idea it is a ghost. He is so unsuspicious. She does not speak, however, and when he looks again, she is gone. The young man relates the circumstance at the breakfast table the next morning and asks each of the ladies present if it were she who was his visitor. But they all assure him that it was not. And the host, who has grown deadly pale, begs him to say no more about the matter, which strikes the young man as a singularly strange request. After breakfast, the host takes the young man into a corner and explains to him that what he saw was the ghost of a lady who had been murdered in that very bed— or who had murdered somebody else there. It does not really matter which. You can be a ghost by murdering somebody else, or by being murdered yourself, whichever you prefer. The murdered ghost is, perhaps, the more popular. You can frighten people better if you are the murdered one, because then you can show your wounds and do groans. Then there is the sceptical guest. It is always the guests who gets let in for this sort of thing, by the by. A ghost never thinks much of his own family. It is the guest he likes to haunt, who, after listening to the host's ghost story on Christmas Eve, laughs at it and says that he does not believe there are such things as ghosts at all, and that he will sleep in the haunted chamber that very night if, if they will let him. Everybody urges him not to be so reckless, but he persists in his foolhardiness and goes up to the yellow chamber, or whatever colour the haunted room may be, with a light heart and a candle and wishes them all good night and shuts the door. Next morning, he has got snow white hair. He does not tell anybody what he has seen. It is too awful. Then there is also the plucky guest who sees a ghost and knows it is a ghost and watches it as it comes into the room and disappears through the wainscot after which, as the ghost does not seem to be coming back and there is nothing consequently to be gained by stopping awake, he goes to sleep. He does not mention having seen the ghost to anybody to fear of frightening them. Some people are so nervous about ghosts, but determines to wait for the next night and see if the apparition appears again. It does appear again, and this time he gets out of bed, dresses himself and does his hair and follows it and discovers a secret passage leading from the bedroom down to the beer sender, a passage which no doubt was not infrequently made use of in the bad old days of yore. After him comes the young man who woke up with a strange sensation in the middle of the night and found his rich bachelor uncle standing by his bedside. The rich uncle smiled a weird sort of smile and vanished. The young man immediately got up and looked at his watch. It had stopped at half past four, he having forgotten to wind it. He made inquiries the next day and found that, strangely enough, his rich uncle, whose only nephew he was, had married a widow with eleven children at exactly a quarter to twelve, only two days ago. The young man does not attempt to explain the circumstance. All he does is vouch for the truth of his narrative. And to mention another case, there is the gentleman who is returning home late at night from a 
Freemason's dinner, and who, noticing a light issuing from a ruined abbey, creeps up and looks through the keyhole. He sees the ghost of a grey sister kissing the ghost of a brown monk, and he's so inexpressibly shocked and frightened that he faints on the spot and is discovered there the next morning, lying in a heap on the floor, still speechless, and with his faithful latch keys clasped tightly in his hand. All these things happen on Christmas Eve. They are all told of on Christmas Eve. For ghost stories to be told on any other evening than the evening of the 24th of December would be impossible in English society as at present regulated. Therefore, in introducing the sad but authentic ghost stories that follow hereafter, I feel it is unnecessary to inform the student of Anglo-Saxon literature that the date on which they were told and the date on which the incidents took place was Christmas Eve. Nevertheless, I do so. How the stories came to be told. It was Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve at my Uncle John's. Christmas Eve at number 47 Laburnum Grove, Tooting. There's too much Christmas Eve about this book. I can see that myself. It's beginning to get monotonous, even to me. But I don't see how to avoid it. Christmas Eve, in the dimly lighted front parlor, there was a gas strike on, where the flickering firelight threw strange shadows on the highly colored wallpaper, while without, in the wild street, the storm raged piteously, and the wind, like some unquiet spirit, flew moaning across the square, and passed, wailing, with a troubled cry round by the milk shop. We had had supper, and were sitting round, talking and smoking, we had had a very good supper, a very good supper indeed. Unpleasantness has occurred since in our family in connection with this party. Rumors have been put about in our family concerning the matter generally, but more particularly concerning my own share in it, and remarks have been passed which have not so much surprised me, because I know what our family are, but which have pained me very much. As for my Aunt Maria, I do not know when I shall care to see her again. I should have thought Aunt Maria might have known me better. But although injustice, gross injustice, as I shall explain later on, has been done to myself, that shall not deter me from doing justice to others, even to those who have made unfeeling insinuations. I will do justice to Aunt Maria's hot veal pasties and toasted lobsters, followed by her own special make of cheesecakes. Warm. There's no sense to my thinking in cold cheesecakes. You lose half the flavor. And washed down by Uncle John's own particular old ale. And acknowledge that they were most tasty. I did justice to them then. Aunt Maria herself could not but admit that. After supper, Uncle brewed some whiskey punch. I did justice to that also. Uncle John himself said so. He said he was glad to notice that I liked it. Aunt went to bed soon after supper, leaving the local curate, old Dr. Scrubbles, Mr. Samuel Coombs, our member of the county council, Teddy Biffles, and myself to keep Uncle company. We agreed that it was too early to give in for some time yet, so Uncle brewed another bowl of punch, and I think we all did justice to that. At least I know I did. 
It is a passion with me, is the desire to do justice. We sat up for a long while, and the doctor brewed some gin punch later on for a change, though I could not taste much difference myself. But it was all good, and we were very happy. Everybody was so kind. Uncle John told us a very funny story in the course of the evening. Oh, it was a funny story. I forget what it is about now, but I know it amused me very much at the time. I do not think I ever laughed so much in all my life. It is strange that I cannot recollect the story, too, because he told it us four times. And it was entirely our own fault that he did not tell it us a fifth. After that, the doctor sang a, a very clever song in the course of which he imitated all the different animals in a farmyard. He did mix them a bit. He brayed for the bantam cock and he, he crowed for the pig, but we knew what he meant all right. I started relating a most interesting anecdote, but was somewhat surprised to observe as I went on that nobody was paying the slightest attention to me whatever. I thought this rather rude of them at first, and until it dawned upon me that I was talking to myself all the time, and instead of out loud, so that, of course, they did not know that I was telling them a tale at all, and were probably puzzled to understand the meaning of my animated expression and, and eloquent gestures. It was a most curious mistake for anyone to make. I never knew such a thing happened to me before. Later on, our curate did tricks with cards. He asked us if we had ever seen a game called the free card trick. He said it was an artifice by means of which low, unscrupulous men, frequenters of race meetings and such like haunts, swindled foolish young fellows out of their money. He said it was a very simple trick to do. It all depended on the quickness of the hand. It was the quickness of the hand deceived the eye. He said he would show us the imposture, so that we might be warned against it and not be taken in by it. And he fetched Uncle's pack of cards from the tea caddy, and, selecting three cards from the pack, two playing cards and one picture card, sat down on the half rug and explained to us what he was going to do. Now I shall take these three cards in my hand, so, and let you see them all, and then I shall quietly lay them down on the rug, with the backs uppermost, and ask you to pick out the picture card, and you'll think you'll know which one it is. And he did it. Old Mr Coombs, who is also one of our church wardens, said it was the middle card. You fancy you saw it, Mr Coombs? I don't fancy anything about it at all. I tell you, it's the middle card. I'll bet you half a dollar it's the middle card. There you are. That's just what I was explaining to you all. That's the way these foolish young fellows that I was speaking of are lured into losing their money. They make sure they know the card. They fancy they saw it. They don't grasp the idea that it is the quickness of the hand that has deceived their eye. He said he had known young men go off to a boat race or a cricket match with pounds in their pockets and come home early in the afternoon stone broke, 
having lost all their money to this demoralising game. He said he should take Mr Coombs's half-crown, because it would teach Mr Coombs a very useful lesson, and probably be the means of saving Mr Coombs's money in the future, and he should give the two and sixpence to the blanket fund. Don't you worry about that. Don't you take the half-crown out of the blanket fund, that's all. And he put his money on the middle card and turned it up. Sure enough, it really was the Queen. We we're all very much surprised, especially the curate. He said that it did sometimes happen that way, though, that a man did sometimes lay on the right card by accident. Our curate said it was, however, the most unfortunate thing a man could do for himself if he only knew it, because when a man tried and won, it gave him a taste for the so-called sport, and it lured him on into risking again and again, until he had to retire from the contest a broken and ruined man. Then he did the trick again. Mr Coombs said it was the card next to the coal scuttle this time, and wanted to put five shillings on it. We laughed at him and tried to persuade him against it. He would listen to no advice, however, but insisted on plunging. Our curate said, very well then. He had warned him, and that was all that he could do. If he, Mr Coombs, was determined to make a fool of himself, he, Mr Coombs, must do so. Our curate said he should take the five shillings, and that would put things right again with the blanket fund. So, Mr Coombs put two half-crowns on the card next to the coal scuttle and turned it up. Sure enough, it was the Queen again. After that, Uncle John had a florin on, and he won. And then we all played at it, and we all won. All except the curate, that is. He had a very bad quarter of an hour. I never knew a man have such hard luck at cards. He lost every time. We had some more punch after that, and Uncle made such a funny mistake in brewing it. He left out the whisky. Oh, we did laugh at him, and we made him put in double quantity afterwards as a forfeit. Oh, we did have such fun that evening. And then, somehow or other, we must have got on to ghosts, because the next recollection I have is that we were telling ghost stories to each other. Well... Time has caught up with us, I'm afraid. So you'll have to wait for a while for the first of the ghost stories. But please do join us again tomorrow night for more tales told after supper. From all of us here, a very good night. Good night.